0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithal. Wellwithal believes that self-care is community care, premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithal's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly well with all. Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's
1: a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional
2: media covering these new faces of Boston.
3: You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the Radar means ahead of the curve.
0: It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley, this week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley.
4: For way too long, the politicians and the people in power have gotten away with not doing anything to fight the climate crisis. And we will make sure that they will not get away with it anymore. We are striking because we have done our homework, and they have not.
0: That's Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old Swedish climate activist who helped spark an international youth climate movement. The very young and their teen counterparts have captured headlines with their urgent advocacy in the streets. But another generation, the millennials, is coming into its own power and is driving a climate revolution as business owners and elected officials. Here in Massachusetts, a group of the state's most influential millennials is now at the heart of an ambitious campaign to transition to 100 percent renewable energy by 2050. Later in the show, the twin identities of Martha's Vineyard provide the backdrop of a local author's charming tale of one woman's gentle double cross. We're kicking off the summer reading season with N.D. Gallon's new novel On the Same Page. It's our June selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me in the studio, Boston City Councilor Michelle Wu, who has been a leading voice on the movement to transition Massachusetts to 100% renewables. Welcome, Councilor Wu. It's great to be here. Ben Hellerstein, State Director for the Environment Massachusetts Research and Policy Center. Hello, Ben.
4: Hi. Thanks for having me. Glad to
0: have you. And Igor Karatonikov, co-founder and COO of Bootstrap Compost, a Boston-based residential and commercial food scrap pickup service. Hello, Igor.
3: Hi there. Happy to be here.
0: Well, I'm happy to have you as well. Well, let me just dive right in with you, Ben. You know, the U.N. came out with that report not long ago saying, really, essentially, we're just (laughs) done for with regard to climate change. It didn't seem to have much of a response, an outrage response or a concern response, certainly among some academics, but not among the people. So what do you think is motivating now your group to be at the point of understanding that it's an urgent concern?
4: Well, I think that this Millennials for 100% Renewable Energy Initiative uh, came out of the realization that for the millennial generation, The concern is there and and the outrage is there. We talk about impacts of climate change in 2050 as though it's the distant future. And um, the fact is that it's within our lifetime and not only within our lifetime, but actually um, we'll still be working. We won't even have retired by that point. Um, So when we talk about things like uh, rising sea levels, when we talk about heat waves, extreme storms, um, those are all things that we're already experiencing and we know that we could see them get a lot worse. So that's the bad news. The good news is that as millennials, we have the power to do something about it. And I think for a long time, we sort of saw ourselves as the kids, you know, and, and that our parents were going to take care of it. You know, but here we are in 2019 and, and there are millennials like Councillor Wu that are serving in uh, city and town governments across the state. Um, there are more than 40 millennials that are serving in the state legislature there are millennial researchers that have created amazing new clean energy technologies and uh, millennial entrepreneurs that have launched the businesses to bring them to market. There are millennial architects and millennial health professionals. And, you know, everybody's kind of working on their own aspect of the solution, but we're not always working together. And so that's why we partnered with uh, Councilor Wu and other millennial leaders across the state to launch this new initiative to, to bring folks together and really try to get our generation to speak with a unified voice. Because I think if millennials across the state can come together and, and speak out for 100% renewable energy, it could really be a game changer.
0: Well, Counselor Wu, people hear 100% renewable. And I think if you said that even two years ago, people would go, oh, that's a little woo-woo. That's a little out there. But now, I I don't know. I think there's been a shift in how people understand what needs to
2: happen. I think it's been the convergence of both some of the reports, so not just the international reports, but even federal reports under this administration coming out and reinforcing that same urgency. But it's also right here outside people's windows and leaking in through their their doorsteps. We are seeing in Boston and everywhere else just an unstoppable march of weather and extreme weather truly impacting people's lives in a way that I think Even a couple years ago, people weren't sensing as much, but the frequency of rain, the frequency of heat, and the amplification of these stories that have led directly to calamitous consequences for a lot of communities, social justice intertwined into all of that, you know, exacerbating racial disparities, exacerbating the impacts on communities who are already least able to afford mitigation. We are seeing that this is something we can't walk away from, and it's already here. It's no longer in the future.
0: And Igor, it seems that your generation is one that has been involved at some level with uh, paying attention to environmental concerns, you know, almost from birth. I mean, we're talking about the Greta Thunbergs, but the millennials were really the ones in college and before that saying, hey, wake up, something is happening here.
3: I would agree with that. You know, with our company, Bootstrap Compost, a lot of our clientele is of that age range. I can see a lot of my peers turning a page in their own lifestyles. You know, using public transportation or biking to work, uh, signing up for services like Bootstrap, committing themselves to renewable energy in their house as renters or homeowners, choosing food, you know, and dietary habits that might reflect a more sustainable lifestyle. For example, eating less red meat. I think we just realize that, and I think for a long time we've been taught and told that, you know, we're at peak oil consumption. Where is the oil going to come from? Where are we going to get more oil? So most of the things in our daily, in our day-to-day are controlled by oil. The food we eat, you know, is made with fossil fuel-based fertilizers and pesticides. The energy that we use, a majority of it, a lot of it is used, is created by coal and dirty fossil fuels. So I think we're trying to kind of get out of that. I think we're trying to be more local, be more sustainable as a generation. I think we're trying to disconnect the powers and the volatility of fossil fuels with food systems and with, with energy systems. And a lot of that is renewable energy. And a lot of that is growing uh, good food locally that is uh, made with natural fertilizers, not artificial And I think that's the start, and I think that's a reflection of of our age group.
0: Ben, a lot of people, I think you said that prior generations would have been happy with 50%, but, you know, you all are all in at 100%. And that seems from where we are now, given what Igor just said, like we got a long way to go. And how do you make that happen by 2050? And actually, you have, there's a couple of bills, one 2035, you want to have something happen. And then by 2045, other stuff should be in place. So, how does that happen? How do we make that transition this quickly?
4: Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think the good news is that we've seen a lot of progress so far. And I think you're right to point out that even just a few years ago, it would have been almost inconceivable to talk about going to 100 percent renewable energy. But in the last 10 years or so, we've seen rapid progress in, in clean energy across Massachusetts and, and all across the country. Today in Massachusetts, we have about 240 times as much solar power installed as we did just 10 years ago, for example.
0: 240 240 times, wow. yeah. So,
4: you know, and I think, you know, even in my lifetime, even going back just a decade, it would have been unusual to see somebody with solar panels on their roof. And now it's, it's more and more commonplace. Um, you know, in the next year or so, we're going to see construction start on uh, the Vineyard Wind offshore wind project off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. Uh, that project alone is going to provide enough electricity to meet about 6% of our needs in Massachusetts. You know, we're seeing more electric vehicles on the road. We're seeing energy storage systems, um, energy efficiency improvements. I think more and more people can really envision a future where all of our energy is coming from renewables. And I think, you know, as millennials, you know, I think we we are maybe a little bit impatient in a sense, you know, that we see these technologies and we see these possibilities. And the question is not Should we go there or can we go there? But how quickly can we possibly make this a reality? And how do we make sure that this move to 100 percent renewable energy is something that really uh, includes and and benefits everybody?
0: Well, in some ways, this very much uh, mirrors the green plan that was put forth by Congressperson Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and also Senator Ed Markey, Massachusetts' own senator. Uh, Let me just play a clip from Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. This is the launch of the Green New Deal initiative in February of this year.
1: Today is also the day that we choose to assert ourselves as a global leader in transitioning to 100 percent renewable energy and charting that path. That means that we are not going to peg ourselves by the lowest standards of other nations. It doesn't mean that we're going to say, what about them? They're not doing it, why should we? We should do it because we should lead.
0: So I don't need to tell anybody at this table that, you know, when the two of them came out, uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey, and put this uh, plan forward, people jumped on them like they were from the planet Z. Like, what are you talking about? We're not, this is crazy, 100% renewable. And here you all are locally saying, no, this is where we're going. And in fact, we're on the march there already. So um, what is the influence at the city level, then, Michelle, that can be brought to make this a reality in a way that apparently people from the rest of the country don't think it's possible by virtue of their response to uh, this proposal.
2: Well, I think it's powerful because municipally at the local, local level, we both see the impacts day to day, and we can move changes that kind of model that type of thinking in a faster way than the federal level can. And so...
0: How 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 you do that?
2: So, for example, the city of Boston now... Two, almost two and a half years ago, um, the city council passed an authorization order for what what's called community choice energy, a municipal aggregation plan that would push the city to adopt a new default electricity plan with a higher sourcing of renewable energy above and beyond what the state is requiring. The city has also taken steps like passing an ordinance to eliminate single-use plastic bags, really flimsy ones that end up in the drains mm-hmm. and in trees, and move to a system where people are encouraged to use reusable, bring reusable bags. We are taking steps in, in trying to expand public transportation infrastructure, dedicated bus lanes, and Fighting for more accessible transit, fare free transit, even dare I say. And we, you know, speaking of food justice, just recently passed an ordinance that would give preference for our Boston Public School lunch purchasing to more local, sustainably sourced, humane, uh, fair ingredients in our school lunches. So we can take steps locally that show the urgency and show how quickly we can act if we marshal the political will to do so.
0: And Igor, do you think that the reason that it's, I mean, I, there are a lot of people here who don't agree with you either, but I'm just saying the, the blowback to the Green New Deal as presented was so intense, I thought, you know, that it was even hard to hear voices of people who actually thought it was, was viable. So is there something going on in Massachusetts, particularly with your generation, as you've said, that seems to make people, well, even if they disagree with it, they're a little bit more open because... Because of some of the things that are already in place,
3: in my case, I feel like economics drive a lot of this. We can talk all we want about
0: well, you're exactly green new right. deals. That's right. We can talk yeah. about mm-hmm. you
3: know the the desire to do something good for the planet or the des- desire to keep the status quo. But in the past ten years, solar power, solar energy, building of solar power has gone down in price by ninety percent. The building of wind turbines has gone down by sixty five percent. So we're talking about economically renewable energy is at a level playing field with fossil fuel energy at this point point. and as a matter of fact a lot of utilities the federal government is subsidizing and helping keep utilities like coal running a lot of these utilities actually want to shut down their coal plants because it's no longer profitable they're old they are a hazard and it's just no longer financially a feasible thing to run and so in my mind, um, I think economically speaking, I always think econ- economics sort of drive our, our practices here in in the United States. So it's a really positive sign that you know renewable energy is coming at a level price point. It also means, again, we're less reliant on the volatility of the fossil fuels and the markets, and we can all be kind of in control of our own destiny and our own future. Quite literally, by controlling our own energy and our own food waste and foods food systems.
0: So, if I hear you correctly, it's not so much the the crisis that hits people it's on people's mind, but they can actually see a return um, based on you know actually saving money by using a different kind of energy or going in a different way.
3: Yeah. I believe so. Oh, you can actually yeah. see a financial return. Look at, I'll use two examples in the in the market recently. So Uber came out as as an IPO, and they they, they didn't tank, but they lost like 17, 17% in, the, in their first day. I think they've rebounded about 10% since then. Beyond Meat came out, um, and that's a meat uh, substitute. Which and, is
0: really good, by the way. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> and their
3: IPO uh, went up by 20, 25, 30, maybe, uh, since the first day. So that shows that investors are looking at sustainable sustainable investing. They're looking at new technologies, new ways of doing business and making money off that. And that's really exciting. I mean, look at Bootstrap Compost. We started in 2011. We had 12 subscribers in Jamaica Plain. Now we have 3,100 subscribers all over the greater Boston area looking to do something good with their food waste. So I think the trend there, the economic trend is there, and it's people that are looking to vote with their dollars. They're looking to make impact and make a change because they're socially and environmentally responsible Mm -hmm. consumers. And so I don't pay too much attention to the narrative because there's always going to be some guy Mm -hmm. saying something or somebody agreeing or disagreeing with you. But if you look at the trends, the trends are moving in the right direction.
2: Michelle, you wanted to add something? I do think there's also a willingness that's kind of endemic to our generation, the millennials, to be comfortable with big ideas that might be beyond the current mm. limit of people's imagination. I mean, we're a generation that grew up very familiar with disruption. I remember when the internet kind of, you know, you went from being plug-in to, to wireless, when instant messenger was invented, and iPods, and, you know, now mu- and music consumption, that so many... Major inventions and technologies kind of came out of nowhere and totally flipped how you do business, how you live your day-to-day lives that I think we're fine imagining that something might come along in the near future that we can't even possibly think what it might be that will enable us to reach, it, reach this higher goal if we just set the appropriate kind of aspirations for ourselves.
4: Yeah, and I would just add that I think we see that willingness to think big among millennials across political lines. So it it gives me a lot of hope that these divisions that have come up, especially on the national level in Mm -hmm. terms of climate denial and extreme partisanship, that may become a, a thing of the past. I mean, if you look at the poll numbers, millennials, even Republican millennials uh, support climate action and recognize the impacts of climate change at numbers that are much higher than than their predecessors. So I think it's one of the challenges is, you know, I think that the Green New Deal has done a really great job of mobilizing support in sort of the progressive base. And then something that's really on my mind at Environment Massachusetts is how do we go out to all parts of the state, whether it's, you know Cambridge and Boston or whether it's the North Shore or Cape Cod or some of these more conservative areas, um, and build support there as well. Because even in a progressive state like Massachusetts, um, to make clean energy policy a reality, we need to have support across the political spectrum.
0: Well, I note that Senator Patrick O'Connor, Republican from Weymouth, <laughs> um, was one of the people at your big lobby day. He represents eight coastal towns. And he says millennials have the skills, knowledge, and motivation to push for significant strides on this issue. So so there you have it, I guess, there's a response to what you just said.
4: Yeah, that's absolutely <laughs> right. Yeah, no, Senator O'Connor is a really great ally. Mm-hmm. And I think he's somebody who's seen the impacts of dirty energy in his community firsthand. Um, He represents coastal communities, so, of course, uh, sea level rise and and storms are a big concern. And also, his district is the proposed site of a massive uh, compressor station Mm -hmm. uh, proposed for an interstate gas pipeline Um, which is going to lead to huge um, air pollution and public safety concerns. So, yeah, really glad to count him as an ally. And I think he's, he's, you know, just one example of the way that our generation is really coming together around a a clean and renewable future.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Boston City Councilor Michelle Wu, Ben Hellerstein of Environment, Massachusetts, and Igor Kara Tonikoff of Bootstrap Compost. We're discussing the millennial-backed campaign to transition Massachusetts to 100% renewable energy by 2050. So with a growing kind of support, are people also at the place where they understand, Councillor Wu, that this is really no longer kind of a, something I'd like to think about, but we're we're really, in your words, at a point where there's no waiting. The action has to be taken. We need to be in action mode.
2: I think we're getting closer to that point. I mean, certainly generationally, Mm -hmm. I think millennials are there. And I realized the other day in horror when I went to speak with a group of college students that they no longer identify as millennials. They're They're already the next generation beyond us, after us. And they are even more ready to take the reins of activist leadership. I think across the board, though, there is still a gap when it comes to what do we actually do and how do we take the steps that might seem a little bit personally inconvenient or require more funding or that we all need to share in a a new way of living. And it's not just about a specific program or paying for this or passing this language through the the House and the Senate, but we need to dramatically transform our society, our economy, our lifestyles, and that affects every single person. You
0: also pointed out that the cost of doing nothing, what, you know, Igor was talking about the costs and how that drives people to take another look at this. But the cost of doing nothing is often something we perhaps don't consider. And you said that is even bigger.
2: I have two young kids. They're four and they're one and a half. And when I think about the world that we might leave them, there is a huge divergence in what they could be facing. The report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change from the United Nations has said, by the year 2030, if we don't take significant unprecedented action, it will be too late. And they will no longer be able to live in vast swaths of the world. They will no longer be able to have food security because many of our food production systems will be threatened or or unable to continue production. They won't be able to experience the basic security about their lives. And so... If we care at all about having a livable city, not even 100 years from now, but just 30 years from now, mm-hmm. we really have to start thinking big and then taking action towards those goals.
0: So, Igor, um, you had an interesting story about a woman making a choice. Um, Michelle was talking about sometimes maybe we don't want to be inconvenient, so we have to think about that as in terms of really making a shift toward if we're going to go through for 100% renewable energy, that means people have to change their behaviors.
3: Correct. So we serve a lot of offices, commercial sites. We provide composting services for them, increasingly so, actually. And it's not just, you know, the social justice warrior company. It's big brands like Kayak, Fitbit, Converse Shoes, Puma, biotech companies. So this example happened at a biotech company. Uh, the woman was... I think in her early thirties and she was picking between two companies who had a similar offer. One of those companies had our composting service, the other company did not. And so one day I was visiting that account and the recruiter actually came up to me and she'd mentioned, Oh, you're the you know, the, the co-founder of the composting company. Well, you know, we had this, this lady apply for a job here and she went through the whole process and she ended up picking the company that has the composting service because that matched her beliefs. And she said to the recruiter that it's because you care about the environment and you care about what you're doing as a business, that's the reason that I picked you. And that even goes back to our business as well at Bootstrap Compost. So we pledge 1% to to the community, to environmental efforts, to uh, social justice organizations, and that helps us recruit more clients. That helps us continue to tell our story in a positive light. It helps us retain the clients we have, and it's just a part of what probably all businesses should be doing is taking like a one percent pledge and making sure, committing that money, toward positive efforts and endeavors and nonprofits and all the people that are doing good work out there that, you know, aren't sufficiently funded or organized or whatever that may be.
0: Ben, one of the things that I think is interesting is that it appears, and maybe it's just a momentary thing, that the younger people, the Greta Thornbergs the 13-year-olds, the 7-year-olds, getting a lot of attention for... Their comments, well, some of Greta's comments are the rest of you older people, that includes you all even, (laughs) have done nothing. So here we are trying to do something. So I wonder how you, as somebody who's been in the slog for a long time, you're now at a point where you have a program that's drawing in a group that people would consider young they don't but but you do how does it all work together how do you feel about that now and it does that undermine is a strong word but does that sort of throw off some of the efforts that you're doing right now as a group as a millennial group
4: yeah well you know there is part of me that sees all the high school students getting attention and it's like no this is our turn to solve <laughs> the problem you guys wait your turn but no it, it's it's great obviously and i think really um inspiring yeah i mean i think that you know our message basically is that as millennials we have the passion and the skills and more and more the power necessary to make a huge difference on this issue and you know but that being said it's not millennials alone you know we welcome partnership with with folks of any age and any background and
0: i just meant in uh, leadership that's what i'm talking about oh yeah Yeah. okay absolutely Yeah. Mm -hmm.
4: yeah so i think that um When I think back to sort of the arc of this campaign over the last several years, and, you know, we've talked a lot about how this idea of 100% renewable that sort of seemed, you know, pretty out there a few years ago has now become more and more mainstream. When I started this campaign back in 2016, you know, even some of our closest allies in the environmental community were hesitant, you know, not because they thought we shouldn't get to 100% renewable or because we can't get to 100% renewable, but because they didn't see politically the path to make it a reality. But the first thing I did was I sat down with actually a a millennial legislator at the state house, Representative uh, Sean Garboli, who was one of the first millennials elected to the legislature, pitched him on this idea. And he said, you know, no hesitation. You know, great. Sign me up. Let's do it. And, you know, we recruited a couple other legislators, you know, Marjorie Decker, Jamie Eldridge to be the other lead sponsors. You know, and here we are two and a half, three years later, uh, we have 113 state legislators that have signed on to endorse this bill, including a majority of both the House and the Senate. And, you know, I think in some ways, you know, people sometimes criticize millennials. They criticize the younger generation because, you know, we, we're we too ambitious or we're not realistic. Or you're kind of flaky. That's or we're kind thought. of, fl- you know, we <laughs> just sit in our say. parents' basement and we eat avocados <laughs> yeah. all day. But, you know, the reality is like, you know, it, it's because we're not willing to take no for an answer because we are willing to put these big ideas out there and take risks that we've been able to accomplish so much. And so I think to solve this problem, it's going to take all of us millennials getting together. It's going to take the older generations. It's going to take the college students and the high school students. You know, but I think we really have the the vision and the drive necessary to, to lead the way forward.
0: Well, make the case for those who perhaps are not in your group now or are not convinced because you have all of that legislative support. You've got these twin bills. So does that mean that they're likely to pass and put your sense on it?
4: Yeah, I I like our chances. I think Mm -hmm. that we have a lot of support in the legislature, which has been really encouraging. The other thing is that we're starting to see other states moving in the same direction. So when we first filed our bill for 100% renewable energy back in 2017, the state of Hawaii had committed to 100% renewable electricity, but really no other states were moving in that direction. Um, Since then, we've seen California, which is the, the fifth largest economy in the world, Pledged to phase out fossil fuel electricity by 2045, and just in the last couple months, New Mexico and Washington State have joined suit, as well as uh, Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia. And you know, for me, it, it, I feel like my Massachusetts pride is kind of wounded when I hear that New Mexico is getting out ahead of us. So, mm. but on the other hand, you know, it, it creates you know this kind of virtuous cycle, right, where it's like leadership begets more mm. leadership, and and I think we have the opportunity i think we have the responsibility to, to lead the way forward in massachusetts and you know if there's anywhere in the world that can make 100% renewable energy a reality isn't it right here i mean we have the political will we have you know some of the smartest people in the world that work within a 10 mile radius of this studio we have a thriving clean energy industry that has already gotten off the ground i think we can create a model here for other states to follow and and i do believe that we can mobilize the support necessary to convince our elected officials to to get on that track
0: Well, you're feeling pretty good, so I'm going to allow all of the rest of you to make the best case scenario for business and politicians to get on this. Um, Because the first thing that would happen is this, as Michelle, as you said, is we would be electrifying everything, which doesn't seem pretty scary to me. But there are transitional costs and transitional steps that, as many of you have pointed out, would take some getting used to. So having said that, make the business and political case for moving forward at this time.
2: I think it's tied to how central climate and environment are to every other issue that we care about. So the state legislature is dealing with a number of different issues. We're talking about education funding and continued criminal justice reform and kind of the stability, housing. But all of that depends on having a place where we can live that is secure and stable, where we are not threatened by severe storms and heat and so climate justice is closely tied and intersects with every other issue we just need to make it relevant for people and you know igor was saying very eloquently before that the economics are already there the jo- it's, it's not just from the consumer's point of view from the employees point of view from the job market we know that Jobs in the green economy are growing faster than average and faster than in any other sector. It is truly in Massachusetts' best interest, not just from people who are living here and from public health and kind of thinking about sustainability, but if we want to harness what will be here, the jobs that will come out of this economy, we should start early. We should plant our stake in the ground um, and, and invest in it so that we keep those jobs local, too.
0: Igor, you're all in, but make the case to a business that's, you know, pretty skeptical.
3: Sure. Well, consumers are changing. The world is changing. People are becoming more conscious with the choices they make. People are the folks that are going to be working at your business. People are the people that are going to be buying your product. So as a business, you probably want to be able to cater to your employees or to cater to this new generation or new kind of mindset that people are evolving into, so it behooves you financially, whether it's uh, lower turnover with your employees or higher sales, to be able to market and to be able to capture that, maybe not new but emerging sort of clientele. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is it's it's a great place to invest. As I mentioned, I mean, again, with solar going down, with uh, wind going down, it's a great place to to put your money whether that's, you know, an investment or whether that's actually starting a new business that caters to creating renewable energy. And I believe there's a great quote by Yvonne Chouinard of Patagonia. I hope I can remember it. (laughs) But business drives policy and consumers drive business. So we can all make an individual change, but at the same time, businesses can also help drive policy. And I hope that consumers can help shape business so that business can drive policy in the right direction. And so my hope is that businesses can not only embrace a certain pledge, but also just change the way that they act, change the way that they market, change the way that they, um, tell the story of the good things that they're doing and, and actually Fulfill those promises.
0: Last word from you, Ben, and make the case that millennials ought to be in charge of this, because that's <laughs> what you're saying <laughs> with this movement. Yeah, well, I think uh,
3: <laughs>
4: millennials in partnership with our our older and our younger uh, counterparts. But yeah, I mean, I think what I would say is that it's so easy for us to get bogged down in all of the bad news, right? And you know, we look at these projections of climate change you know, by the year 2100, there could be up to 10 feet of sea level rise in Boston Harbor, you know, and and that's within the lifetime of a child that's born today. And that's really scary. You know, on the other hand, I think we have this amazing opportunity right now to, to do good, not just for ourselves and not just for the people that are alive today, but for every generation that comes after us, right? I mean, the decisions that we make in the next 10 to 20 years are going to have a profound impact on the lives of every human being and every creature on this planet for centuries to come, right? So on the one hand, we better not screw it up. But on the other hand, we just have this incredible opportunity to really make a difference. And I see the progress that we're already making in Massachusetts. I see young people, millennials and those younger than us, increasingly coming together around the world to call for change. And, and I feel optimistic and I feel hopeful. We've got a lot of work ahead of
0: us, but I, I believe we can get it done. All right. Well, thanks very much. I'm sure we will have you back at this table as this movement goes along because there will be much discussion, I know, in the legislature and certainly led by you at City Council, Councilor Wu. So thank you all for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Boston City Councilor Michelle Wu is a leading voice on climate justice and the movement to transition Massachusetts to 100% renewables by 2050. Ben Hellerstein is the state director for the Environment Massachusetts Research and Policy Center. And Igor Karatonikov is a co-founder and COO of the Boston-based residential and commercial food scrap pickup service Bootstrap Compost. Coming up, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Never has that old saying been truer than in the new novel set on the beautiful island of Martha's Vineyard. Johanna Howes didn't set out to deceive, but pressing circumstances and a need to work put her in an untenable position. How it all comes to a head is the kind of entertaining escapism made for summer reading. On the same page is our June selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. ¶¶ I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call lanyep that's Creole, for something extra. Most people think of Martha's Vineyard only as a summer resort spot, jam-packed with Tony tourists. But during the rest of the year, the islanders reclaim Martha's Vineyard, embracing a low-key lifestyle of clam chowder, chilly beach walks, and community government. That's the setting for the delightful new novel On the Same Page by author N.D. Galland. On the same page is our June selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And N.D. Galland joins me now in the studio. Hi, Callie. I'm so glad to have you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So I'm going to share with my listeners that last summer we were at a writer's uh, <laughs> uh, meeting, and you mentioned to me you were working on a novel. And I said, I can't wait to read it. And when I do, I'm sure I'm going to want to talk about it. And here we and are. And here we are. <laughs> so I'm I very... love it when it works out that way. <laughs> Thank do. you. So I'm, very, I'm totally excited. So I like nothing better than a beach book, and certainly a beach book that's set on the many beaches of Martha's Vineyard just thrills me to no end. So mm. let's begin this way and I'm going to ask you to tell me who Joanna Howes is and how she came to be back on Martha's Vineyard.
1: Uh, Joanna Howes is a writer who, <laughs> I wonder where I got this from, um, grew up there and then went away and then came home again. In her case, she came home against her wishes. She had a family member that had an accident, and she had to go home to take care of him, and then once she gets there in the winter, she sort of stuck there, and her particular style of writing requires her to be in person with the people she's interviewing. So if she's stuck on Martha's Vineyard in January, she can't really go anywhere to to do that. That's her normal form of work. So she determines that she needs to write for the local paper. There are actually two papers, which is true in real life. There's a lot of things about the book that are based in reality, if you haven't noticed. And um, she decides to write for one of them, and then she realizes that she will not make enough money writing for one of them. So she decides she has to write for both of them. But, and this is also true, <laughs> you're not supposed to write for both papers. So she has to figure out a way
0: around that. So I, I love the, the twisted tale of her trying to figure <laughs> out how to make this both happen so that she can can feed herself. So here you are exploring the twin identities of the island, if you will, which is the winter and the summer identities yeah. of Martha's Vineyard. Very different. And we can take a moment to talk about that. And then you have a character who's now embracing a couple of different identities at the same time. Yeah,
1: that's true. (laughs) As am I, because normally I publish under Nicole Galland. And then we did something slightly different for this one. So in a way, someone pointed out to me that I even have an assumed identity in
0: all of this. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about exploring the twin identities of the island.
1: Yes, yes. This is a big one for me because mm-hmm. I grew up there year round and I then I went away for a while and then I came back. And when I came back, the beginning, I found myself drawn more towards the summer population and then both. I'm one of the few people that I know that is completely comfortable sort of in both worlds. But the winter population, especially when I was growing up, I think it's a little better now. It was the poorest county in Massachusetts. Even while the Kennedys and other folk were there, that's, and it had a really high alcoholism rate. The summer population, which is the population that most people know, tends to be a lot of folks from the movie industry, a lot of um, wealthy Bostonians who come down there, a lot of New Yorkers as well. And the two worlds have this kind of tenuous meet and greet every year where people want to feel like they are respected by the other group. And yet also want to feel like their group is actually a little better. There's snobbery and there's reverse snobbery. And both things play into the whole thing in a very lively way. But as I'm saying that, that makes it sound like a negative thing. And it's not entirely a negative thing. It's just a kind of a jolly tension.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I wanted to get you to read because you mentioned that. Joanna is faced with writing for uh, two of the newspapers, and they have very different personalities as well. So you have a little bit of a description about the two two and how they are different.
1: There were copies of both island newspapers on this table, lying slightly askew as if forgotten by a distracted traveler. One was a slender, old-fashioned broadsheet, much larger than the New York Times, the sort of paper an Edwardian butler would iron for his master before serving it at breakfast. Its elegant masthead featured decorative scrolls and some invented coat of arms, and was crowned by a poetic quote which changed each issue. This issue's appropriate to the season, was from Twelfth Night. When that I was in a little tiny boy with hey-ho the wind and the rain, a foolish thing was but a toy, for the rain it raineth every day. William Shakespeare The second paper was smaller and thicker, stuffed with advertising supplements, splashed with colour, bedecked with peppy weather icons and taglines for articles waiting inside. Each paper sported a photo above the fold. The larger paper, The News, featured a large black-and-white shot of smiling teenagers standing hand-in-hand in medieval costumes on the lip of a stage. The depth of field created an almost three-dimensional effect. The foreground and background figures artfully blurred, those in the middle distance sharp and luminous under stage lights. Camelot enchants at the newly refurbished Performing Arts Centre, the headline announced. The smaller paper, the journal, had a sans-serif headline that read Vineyard Youth Lead State in Marijuana Use. There was a gripping colour photo of a back door at the high school, featuring a DEA officer with arms akimbo, staring toward the camera at three teenage boys with their backs to the viewer. Some things would never change. Those weeklies had defined themselves by their differences since the day back in Joanna's childhood that some disaffected Newsies had rebelled and huffed themselves halfway across the island to launch the journal. If Hank didn't survive his injuries, he'd want an obit only in the journal. The news would cloak him in the pastel hues of an old-school island sage while the journal would celebrate his (laughs) rabble-rousing.
0: That's my guest, N.D. Gallon, whose latest book is On the Same Page, and it's set on Martha's Vineyard. And it's our June selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And we're kicking off our summer reading season with your book because it's so perfect for that. Um, But interestingly enough, the thing that's so capturing about this novel, because you are in the winter months in the novel, are the scenes from the winter, which many of us who... Come in the summertime are just not familiar with. They're just so beautifully told, and it's a really quite a different way of looking at the same space that we yeah. see overrun with tourists, right? right. Like no, myself. That's, <laughs> yes, that's
1: that's true. And yeah. and for those of us that
0: grew up there, the
1: the winter scenes are the reality for us. Then there's like this kind of crazy, hectic, glorious summer wildness, and then it goes back to, real, quote-unquote, real life. Well,
0: not quote-unquote, actual real life, which are those scenes. Uh, I'm going to have you read in a bit uh, uh, from one of those sections, but I'm curious about why. Is that the reason why you wanted to set it in the winter months? Because you really wanted us to get away from what we might expect a book set on the vineyard to be about?
1: Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. I think so. Um, There's definitely... I used to get defensive when I would say I was from Martha's Vineyard when I lived out west, and people would immediately assume a whole lot of things about me that just weren't true. And this is the reverse snobbery on my part. And so it was very important to me to recite all the facts about Martha's Vineyard that did not match up with their you know, assumptions about it. And so at a certain point, I thought, why don't you just write a book about it and then you can stop feeling the need to preach. Um and, uh, and also, I, I like to look at the backsides of things. The, the, the stuff that is known in general is known in general. I, the, what you don't see is the more interesting mm-hmm.
0: side. Well, let's see. Here's a very vineyard scene on page 12. Why don't you read a bit? It was a Wednesday in January, so there was no traffic
1: anywhere as she drove past the Tashmu overlook. Then through the brief stretch of Tisbury's commercial zone of auto mechanics, grocery stores, and office buildings... She skirted the archetypal New England small town main street of Vineyard Haven and zipped down through five corners onto Beach Road, the causeway between the harbour and the lagoon. Today was a brisk beauty. Bright blue sky, darker blue harbour, the lagoon a muted mirror of the harbour. The new ferry pushed through the gentle swells headed back to the mainland. Passing a couple of masochistic pleasure boats, she sped over the drawbridge to the brick behemoth. Martha's Vineyard Hospital was the largest repository of local artwork on the island. Its corridors were lined with donations from scores of local artists, both year-rounders and summer people. Photographs of life here a hundred years ago, uncountable seascapes and rural landscapes and harbors, abstracts, ancient marine charts. Joanna's theory was that the hospital had been made as inviting as possible so that people would actually use it. New Englanders did not go in much for admitting they needed help. Celia, on the other hand, posited that since a huge percentage of summer visitors somehow ended up there, usually thanks to Lyme disease or moped accidents, the artwork was to make up for lost opportunities to sightsee.
0: Uh, that's my guest, Indy Gallon, whose latest book uh, is on the same page. Um, you know, I didn't know that piece of information about the artwork in the hospital. Yeah, that's so I, true. I, I figured. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> One of the things I love about that is, to me, that's a perfect example of of all elements of the vineyard sort of working, coming together and, and being fabulous. It is because there's such a vibrant community, both winter and summer, that the hospital can be like that. It's so... And it's true. I never mind going to the hospital, which is
0: not true anywhere off island. I've been there once. It wasn't fun because I was sick and I didn't want just... to be there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, anyway, Um one of the things that I enjoyed about the story are learning about the year-rounders' lives. Um, there are a lot of salt-of-the-earth characters in here. Yes. And um, much of the book is set around some community engagement. We're not going to tell all the details because I want people to read it. But, but it was really interesting to you know, engage in, that, in the conversations in those meetings mm. and to for how people knew each other. And uh, you know, I know this is fiction, but it felt very real to me
1: there's a reason for that (laughs) okay a lot of it is a lot of it hangs very loosely on uh i've had people from you know in town come up to me and say i know what that was a reference to (laughs) i know who that character's based on yeah there's there's definitely a i was actually terrified when it came out my impulse was like i need to run away and not come back for a year because so many people know so
0: much about the backstory of the story well um Part of the tension that's happening in the community uh, government sessions, that's all I'll say, um, has to do with the overarching tension that you mentioned earlier, which is about the summer people and what their place is and who they are and the year-rounders and who they are. And it's kind of complicated because, to a large extent, the year-rounders really need those summer people to come and drop their money Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Yeah, um, yep. It's a tough—I mean, it's, it's tough to earn a living there year-round, which is uh, why I wanted you to uh, read a bit from um, Joanna at this point, who has met up with somebody who turns out to be— well, she thinks he's a wealthy summer person. And they have a really interesting dis- discussion about the vineyard and, you know, who's real and who's authentic and blah, blah, blah. We, oh, so this is Joanna
1: talking with um, a character named Orion, although I don't think his name comes up. So hmm. uh, this is her speaking first. We had permission to trespass. Sometimes it was tacit permission, but it was a time when that just happened a lot. People weren't as fierce about guarding their property lines as they are now. He came out of the pantry with a small dessert plate. You were a kid. How rough is anyone going to be with a little girl? He considered the loaf of gingerbread, curlicues of steam still hovering over it as he assessed which piece to take. If you were a grown-up caught trespassing, you'd have paid hell for it. I don't think so. It was the same for fishermen and hunters. It's the law of the land that fishermen can go anywhere below the high-water mark, but that's becoming acrimonious in a way it just didn't used to be. More and more, the people with summer homes want to be here because the island is trendy and pretty, not because they have any real understanding of what the island is. They have no deep ties to the community, and they're really disinclined to form any. I mean, they become buddies with each other and say things like, oh yeah, I really feel like I'm a part of the community, but they just mean the community of well-heeled summer people. They just mean their own enclave. She could feel herself physically heating up. This was the part of her that Hank had molded and fed, and she did not want it to get the better of her at this moment, but she felt its anger and she couldn't shut it down. I mean, sure, they might invite a real working islander to their cocktail party because it gives them street cred, and they'll give generously to all the fundraisers, which is great, but they don't actually want to know the natives. They don't want to really face with any kind of intimacy the people who have no stable housing or are struggling to make their mortgage or who dive into depression every winter when there's no employment. They want to appreciate them without embracing them. They will open their pocketbooks, but not their gates. So the whole issue of access comes down to money, nothing but money.
0: Wow. Uh, That's my guest, Indy Galland, whose latest book is on the same page. It's our June selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. And I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. So that just feels extremely authentic, that whole exchange, oh boy, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah. So is there very much that ongoing, in that way, tension?
1: Yes, yes, mm-hmm.
0: there is. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, in some ways, it's better in that since the advent of the sort of telecommunications lifestyle, there are actually now on the vineyard year-round a lot more well healed folks and so th- there's there's less of a divide between the haves and the have-nots because now there are some haves that are there all the time. Um, and I think that that's helped. But there's definitely a lot... Th- there's definitely still a divide. Um, and and it causes tension. And I was actually surprised when I wrote this book, which is essentially a lighthearted romp, mm-hmm. um, how much anger came up in me as I was writing it. My, my little working-class childhood self got really upset in ways that I did not realize I was upset. I mean, I think it was pretty cathartic. I don't walk around being angry. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, um, yeah, there's definitely, and a lot of my friends still who who have chosen to never leave there are, are very aware within themselves of some of that tension as well.
0: Well, you know, what I appreciated about it, because as someone who has gone to the island quite a bit over the years, and I'm mostly there in the summer, so I've heard the issues around housing, the issues around uh, food insecurity, Uh, and I know that to be real, and I've done a few stories down there as well, Uh, to see it just worked into this. As you say, it's it's lighthearted, and it's meant to be that, but it has, uh, you put some meat on the bones in the mouths of some fictional characters about what it is really like to try to build a life there.
1: Yeah, thank you for saying that, because mm. that was, that was, I was going for that. So I'm glad to know I got there. <laughs>
0: yeah, yes, you definitely did. So I'm wondering, as somebody who has now written it in a fictional way, and lived it in a real way, what do you think the impact of the summer people really, really is now? I mean, things have changed over the years. Um, I don't know how many presidents have descended there in the summer. Uh, I many. love the stories about the cell phones, towers going off and on as the presidents come, which is it is it's really interesting. And, you know, there's plenty of fancy restaurants. But I always tell people there's lots of other stuff there, too, that I, nobody ever writes about that I just enjoy, you know, on the island. But at the same time, I am a summer person. So I wonder, um, from your vantage point over the years, what have you seen change?
1: Wow. Um, I In some ways, the summer has changed more than the winter. Um, as I just said, the the winter feels less barbarically isolated because there there is a greater um, array of people. And so I think the minute that you have different kinds of people in a place, no matter how few of them there are and how quiet it is, if you have different kinds of people, there are conversations that can happen. And so I feel like in the winter there are interesting cultural conversations, more so than there used to be. But the summer went from being a place where summer people came and hung out with their island friends to being a place where there's such enclavization Mm. um explain well even even amongst the summer people the feeling that i get (laughs) is that there's like that group over there and this group over here and this group over here and and people want to go to the vineyard and hang out with the same kinds of people that they hang out with when they are not on the island and that just doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's, that's very counterintuitive to me. Um, I, I love going there, and I have enough different cohorts. I have the one, people I grew up with, and I have the people that I became friends with once I moved back as an adult, um, and, and various other groups. And to me, the whole point is community. And um, so the, the, the people that aren't opting into that are that to me personally is the Mm. biggest change. It's also just so much more crowded.
0: Yeah, no, it is. But you know what? It's so funny because uh, from your vantage point, it must be horrendously crowded. From my vantage point, I don't really care because I'm not working. So I'm just, right. I'm yeah. just there and then just enjoying everything that I love about it. But in terms of community, I can only access it through certain small ways. So, for example, I miss the pie lady. I mean, I am destroyed by the fact that the pie lady yeah. died. Yeah, <laughs> You know, oh, yeah. I mean, that's really. So the really... <laughs> pie lady
1: was one of my oldest friend's mother. Yeah. So, so like that's so I, I was having the pies before she was the pie lady because <laughs> I would just
0: go there after school. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. But so we both we both feel that loss, but we feel it in different ways. I do, yeah. And um, anytime they change some of the, even changing the 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 uh, tickets to get on the ferry now, I found very upsetting. So now there's this plastic card that you have to put in, and it does some automatic thing. Do you know, I wasn't even
1: aware of that because I, I wasn't going off as a foot passenger, and I saw that, and I was like, "What? what you can't modernize. I know. I can't You're the ferry. It.
0: Don't modernize. I really cannot stand it, and yes. I've had many a discussion with yes. the, the ticket takers, you know, who are just sick of me by now, like, I hate these. Where's yeah. my paper tickets? So I'm just a so, so that So from
3: the
1: point of view of how things have changed that way, yeah. Every time there's any significant change. Yeah. When yeah. Uh, when the up island supermarket market was bought by Kronigs and suddenly it was up island Kronigs instead of just the Up Island supermarket. And then Kronigs was a chain because there were two of them. Yes. That was very upsetting. Yes. And then when they rebuilt the the one up island and then when they rebuilt the one in like everything it there's it's it's a time honored tradition to be very upset when things change. Yeah,
0: it is. Well, I think that with Martha's Vineyard and you didn't wisely didn't mention the the uh, presidential visits in your books, uh, in your book. Um, I think that has a lot to maintaining a sort of interesting kind of a mystique about it. So for for a while now, more people will still come because they're just curious to know you know, what's happening when the president's there or the former presidents have been there. So that's interesting. So my question to you as the book writer, um, I was a fan of books by Philip Craig, who wrote a whole series oh, yeah. about a yeah. ex-Boston mm-hmm. cop, this is fictional, um, who solved crimes on Martha's Vineyard, and he passed on. And we still have Cynthia Riggs, who's 92-year-old character, I know. Victoria Trumbull, you know, keeps, keeps going, going. On. Yep. So I could see you could make a series out of this. That's funny because it, <laughs> since it's...
1: Um, <laughs> Various friends and I, whenever things sort of come up, interesting mm-hmm. tensions, everyone says that's the sequel. That's that that'll go in the sequel. You should put that in the sequel. This is.
0: How, are you uh, yes. thinking about it?
1: I, I'm sort of thinking about it, but I'm also, you know, the the lag time with books is. I just finished the first draft of my next novel yes. yesterday. Okay. So at the moment, my head is in a completely different place because that's speculative fiction. It's a different part of my brain entirely. But I am very aware that it was fun to do this. It was terrifying because. I felt like I was showing the dirty laundry Mm. but so far no one's ostracized me (laughs) so I think it would be less scary the next time around and therefore really fun and I feel like the character's I've, I've set the characters up so that there are interesting things that they could continue
0: to do. And I love a contemporary story. So this is a, a great book for the, for Summer and the Beach and all of those reasons because it's a contemporary story. It sounds like people I kind of sort of know. They're very different from the other characters, fictional characters that have, yes. been, that have been set on the vineyard. So you have a whole wide open space to continue if you so desire. Yeah,
1: well, you know, <laughs> it's, it's very tempting. And I definitely see all of the conflicts that are part of the class and mm-hmm. and year round thing. I, I see them through the lens of, hmm, what kind of plot would that make?
0: So yeah. Well, I have to say I thoroughly enjoyed it, thank and you. I know that all my listeners will enjoy it as well. It's going to be, I think, it'll be a classic.
1: Thank you from your mouth to Gaza.
0: So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Kelly. <laughs> Indy Galland is the author of On the Same Page. It's our June selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. On the Same Page is available in bookstores and online now. And that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineers are Doug Sugarts and John Parker. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.